0: Simon Kennedy, our, our cricket expert here in our studios, Queen Victoria Street, in charge of all economic government. I don't know what Simon does Brexit. And anyways, Mister Kennedy said sure Trent Bridge anymore. in Nottingham. I don't know. I can't keep track. <laughs> it's like the prime minister's. Who knows? Uh, Nottinghamshire is that what you call it? Just
1: Nottingham will do. Nottingham. That's okay, Nottingham.
0: Bridges. That was like his childhood home.
1: Yeah, I think there's some home. So for him, here.
0: it's as big as it's as big as Lords. But John, I didn't know this Lord seats twenty eight thousand. Watch cricket. It's very cool there. And it sells out. And it sells out. That's the voice All of the
2: David time. Merritt, Bloomberg's David, senior you, executive editor. Do you Emerson. go to cricket? I do go to cricket. I've got my tickets for the summer. We've got the World Cup it's just started here. Just Can to you explain of, to him, ashes.
1: David, that it's a good day out of drinking? It's, a, it's
2: an oh, no, excellent more, day out. There's a bit of sport in the background as well. <laughs> there's
0: Pakistan and England, and people are like totally focused on this, oh, right? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. It's a big thing. It's a big thing. I'll take you to the game. How long are you here for? There's some
0: I my day I I have to go see the Tots, don't
1: I? No, that season's ended. Okay. Spurs at really football's Spurs done? Are, that's thank done. God for that. They're, they're sleeping until everybody
0: August. on I eighty coast to coast in America said, so Thank God Premier League is done. I think there's
1: a South American Cup that we can discuss though, to fill in the boredom. Over the next couple, we have of two
0: esteemed guests here with a date calendar to a press conference. We
1: do. Jenny Leonard joining us. Well, Bloomberg trade reporter David, help us set us up in about what an hour from now. Mm. A joint news conference. I have no idea what it's about. What is it about?
2: Well, it's going to be about everything. I suspect. You know, this is this. The last time this happened, last time the president came, it went on for I think much longer than an hour. He takes questions from everybody. He has rather long answers, and there's a lot to cover here. We have um, Brexit, obviously lurking in the background. We have the question a big question about a U.S. trade deal, what that might look like. Lots of controversial comments from the American side the last couple of days. Mrs. May is going to be asked about that. We've got questions about Iran, uh, questions about Europe. And of course, the big one, who is Mrs. May's successor going to be? Um, he is not shy about wading into that debate and you can bet your bottom dollar he's going
1: to be really asked. really awkward. I,
0: I agree. Jenny, uh, Leonard, this is important as you work out of Washington. And of course, the expertise is trade how would you suggest the president will respond after the pomp and circumstance of 48 hours when somebody goes something about Mueller or Barr or name the other scandal of your Washington? How does he respond?
3: Well, trade for President Trump is always sort of a pivot away from domestic politics okay, that, so somebody, that are ugly. Yeah,
0: somebody brings up Mexico and immigration in the border wall. Is he going to be offended that these questions are being asked? in in england
3: i I don't know that he will be uh, defensive about it i think he's actually about the mexico uh border wall and his latest announcement of tariffs coming on mexico i think he's happy to talk about that i think he's pretty confident that that will you know solve the problem that you know no one in congress is gonna throw a wrench in that and um and i'll i'll I'm sure he'll be happy to answer all kinds of questions.
1: It's difficult to find a topic that both individuals can speak to. There just seems to be a bunch of separate different things going on that you want to Mm. ask Prime Minister May and that you would like to ask the President of the United States. One thing of a couple of things that I think both can speak to is Huawei. David and I just wonder to what degree that has been discussed in the last 24 hours yeah well
2: this is this was definitely on the agenda when the two met in Downing Street earlier today and again of course it's something else that they both disagree on Uh, mr. Trump's trying to ladle on the pressure for Britain to change its mind and to join with them in uh, restricting Huawei completely from building the 5G network so far Britain has said it's it needs Huawei it needs this to do it in a in a cost-effective measure Um, is she gonna crumble is she gonna say well in fact the Americans have Helped us change our mind. They're twisting their
0: arm. What? what are the ramifications if she crumbles or doesn't crumble?
2: Well, the, the big arm twisting is around the, the the sharing of intelligence. Britain and America, Britain particularly prides itself on being having this special access to American intelligence and that has been what's mm-hmm. been put at threat in the last few weeks. They've said, well look, if you're going to insist on right. having your networks <clears> done by Huawei, we're not going to be able to send you all of our intelligence. Jenny
0: Leonard, at the Buckingham Palace yesterday along with Secretary Mnuchin taking a video of it off his iPhone, we're The worthies of the Trump administration lined up and there was Stephen Miller who was on the trip and he's part of the border wall and immigration debate. How does he fit in to the trip and how does he fit in to the linkage to trade with Mexico?
3: Good question. The, the trip—it's uh, my only
0: it, good one today. You got it. No one else gets a good question.
3: The the Trumpet advis- advisors that came on the trip kind of do not fit in. It's Mnuchin and his wife here, but you know they're talking about trade, and the U.S. trade rep isn't coming. So you know, Lighthizer's
0: it, not here. Thank you. Yeah, he's not, I did yeah, not, he's know not that.
3: here. He's not part of the trip. Which I think the constellation of people is a little bit interesting. Stephen Miller is, of course, one of the architects of Trump's immigration policy. Uh, To Huawei, I think one interesting thing is that Trump himself isn't really consistent when he talks about Huawei, right? I mean, we heard him say we heard him say uh, before he left for Japan a couple weeks ago. You know, Huawei is a really big intelligence risk. Uh, Our national security folks are really worried about it. And in the next sentence, he says, "Well, maybe we wrap this into a trade deal," which makes Mm. his advisors, his national security advisors, really uncomfortable because they don't want to want this to be, you know, kind of part of a trade discussion that could be traded away because they want actually to focus on, uh, you know, convincing allies like the UK to go through with banning Huawei from from this. So we'll see if Trump gets asked about it, if he has a consistent message here. Uh, yeah. and, then, and then we'll see what Prime Minister May has to say. Well, Jenny,
1: certainly at home, no problem convincing both Democrats and Republicans of the push around China and Huawei for that matter. Yeah. When it comes to Mexico, very different story. Interesting development overnight, some great reporting from the team in Washington. Jenny, that maybe Senate Republicans are looking to push back against this effort. How can they formalise that? What can they do?
3: So they could pass a resolution of disapproval, which you have to overcome a veto-proof majority, which we've seen in the past when they have tried to do that. That's actually more difficult than you think. And I would note... To anyone who, you know, is looking at this with maybe some optimism that Congress could stop Trump on his trade agenda, don't hold your breath. We've seen this before uh, on national security tariffs, steel and aluminum with autos. We've seen kind of a momentum even from his own party saying this might be a step too far. I don't know if they can actually swing this one.
0: And now one final question. Farrow and I counting the minutes of no Brexit. No leave. Are you bringing up no remain? a Brexit
1: question? With David Merritt,
0: I have to. Okay, there's the headline, the president maybe will meet with Mr. Gove. Mm. What level of Brexit is Mr. Gove, and does the president greet him as a Brexiteer like the others?
2: Well, he certainly was one of the architects of the Brexit campaign, but if you look at the spectrum now or the 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 brexit rainbow if you like the tory of
3: the tory, <laughs> of it's the tory light, contenders. He,
2: he's somewhere in the middle actually you know he's not actually going out and advocating we storm out with no deal um come what may which is what mr johnson and mr rob are saying he was the one who stuck by mrs may through thick and thin he voted yeah. for her deal remember he didn't leave the cabinet mm. saying this is uh, mm. um uh, subjecting Britain to European laws forever. So he's a loyalist to the Prime Minister. He is more of a centrist. He's, he says we should find a middle way. And it's very interesting that Mr. Trump has chosen to use his spare time this afternoon to meet with him rather than with Mr. Johnson, as was suggested. Being very kind to ago. Mr.
1: Gove, describing him as a loyalist, um strategic, well, okay. strategically oh, Jen,
2: selfish. Yes, in fact, you know, <laughs> here. N- in, Macbeth, in fact, you
0: know, known as Macbeth. In fact, <laughs>
2: Uh, but he has, I think it's undeniable. You know, he he was the he was the heaviest weight to actually stick with Mrs. May right. throughout this. Now you can you can question his motives for that. Is it because yeah. he was lining himself up for where he is now for the job, possibly?
0: David, they they ate Windsor lamb last night. Is that like lambs that they kill off the hills of the Windsor? I, Castle? I, I don't
2: think they go out and shoot them <laughs> themselves like they do the deer, perhaps, and the, and yeah. the pheasant. Um, I think they're probably sent to the Abbotsoir, but I guess they must be, there are sheep in me. I walk my dog in Windsor Great Park sometimes at the weekend and there are definitely, you know, dotted sheep. You around. should get
1: over to Windsor, it's beautiful time. <laughs> you know,
0: I can't compete with this, me and Vet Bill, we're <laughs> making it out into Central Park if we're lucky, to the baseball fields. You do what with your dog? Well, it's not
2: far, you know, my, um, my son goes to school near there, so I, I, I walk my dog in... What in are you, posh? Randy. How do you say it? It's like nasty? <laughs>
1: You're posh. I don't think he says nasty. David is posh. I don't think David says, nasty. You, think what, David
2: says nasty. you get all sorts around Windsor, I'm telling
1: you. <laughs> David Merrick. We're saying thank you to David. We're saying thank you to Jenny. And we're going from London for our audience worldwide. This, unfortunately today, is still Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> Let's bring in Mike Ryan Shelby, UBS America's CIO. He joins us on this program. Great to catch up with you, Mike. Walk us through the essence of the research that you guys have put out.
4: Well, good morning, John. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, what we try to do is we try to lay the framework out for what's likely to be a pretty certainly entertaining, but also informative series of debates that are going to happen between the Democratic candidates but also begin to set our sightlines a little further afield. Obviously, the 2020 election is going to have huge implications, uh, not only in terms of who is the resident in the White House, but also the composition of Congress. Before we get there, though, we need to talk about what the major issues are going to be focused on. So one of the things we did in that report was we highlighted a number of focus issues that we're going to be writing uh, follow-up reports on over the course of between now and the election. These include issues ranging from uh, regulatory environment to tax issues to health care to infrastructure, Uh, immigration policies. These are things that are critical not only to voters, but certainly to investors as well.
1: Looking at the situation going into 2016, something a lot of people got very, very wrong was framing the President of the United States, now President Donald Trump, as the risk-off candidate, the high vol risk-off candidate, Mike. And what we found out subsequently is he was anything but for much of the first year. How are we framing the two parties from a market perspective, just in terms of the investor bias right now, what is it around these two parties?
4: Well, I, I do think when you when you think about the, the potential candidates, and obviously it's it's very very early to start handicapping who could emerge from the Democratic field as the as the ultimate nominee. But as we think about this um, this field, what we're going to be focused on now is where the policy paths start to lead. Obviously, one of the things we saw from um, the re- election of Donald Trump was a focus on several things. One was on regulatory reform, and another was on tax relief, which were very market-friendly. The concerns, of course, are that whoever emerged from the Democratic field could take a very, very different posture on both of those. It could be talking well, about <clears throat> increasing taxes as a way of uh, closing the, de- the budget deficit, but also of reimposing some of the, the regulations that have been put in place during the Obama administration.
0: Mike, what's fascinating to me and this, in the last couple of days, I've seen articles that clearly show there's no policy traction yet among the many Democratic candidates. People aren't focused on it, which I, you know, I guess I understand. I guess we learned health care mattered in the midterms. Do we get to the first or the fourth or the 42nd debate in health care just becomes the topic as we saw in the midterms?
4: It certainly could be, Tom. I think it's going to be, first of all, as, as, you, as you mentioned, it, it's really early to start handicapping exactly how the policy path yeah. will, will map out and also who will emerge as the, as the primary candidates. However, when you look across the field, what you do see is some commonality. Health care is one of the things that emerges from almost all of the, the potential candidates from the Democratic side. So there's no question that over the course of the debates and going into uh, the, the, uh, the party uh, convention, Healthcare is going to emerge as one of the critical issues for the Democrats
1: listening to some investors out there, I always think that some investors receive more attention than maybe they deserve. Stan Drucker Miller is not one of those investors. He spoke yesterday evening and said the following: When the Trump tweet went out he 's referring to the Trump tweet on China a number of weeks ago. I went from ninety three percent invested to net flat and bought a bunch of treasuries. Not because i 'm trying to make money, I just don 't want to play in this environment. Talk to me about this environment. Right now, and whether you can play in this environment.
4: Well, we want to be really careful about it, is not to to play too tactically against trade. You know, our, our view is we want to maintain a, a relatively balanced portfolio. Our, our ultimate view is that we do think a pathway will be found for a framework on an agreement between the U.S. and China. But remember, John, this is this, the issues that the U.S. and China are contending with have been decades in the making. The notion that we're going to solve this in, in 6 or 12 or 18 months or that we're going to come to this comprehensive agreement that the two parties sign and have this big signing ceremony, I, I think it's a little naive. Instead, what I think you'll see is there will be, first of all, we, we do expect to see some more back and forth between the U.S. and China. But ultimately, it's, it's in both parties' interest to come to some sort of framework that allows for the following. Right. The eventual but, easing of tariffs, but it has to come with verification.
0: But you mentioned the key item, and we've heard this in London in different conversations. In both parties' interests is a rational statement. Have we seen rationality in these trade debates?
4: You, you can argue there has been rationality because so far it's been about how you posture and how you try and tack for advantages. Nothing. There's nothing irrational about that. What is irrational is if you take it to its end game, where you see both parties backing themselves yeah, into a corner.
0: But I'm, I'm looking at West Texas Intermediate, uh, which John, I haven't really brought up in weeks. And I've got an exceptionally elegant chart from 63 straight down to 52.81. And, you know, you look at it as a proxy for global demand, oil demand, and also the economic demand that's out there and it's speaking volumes
1: i think reading the data right now is really difficult we had some ism and pmi what they yesterday. Say remind me of weakness that. tom and slightly disappointing as well relative to the solid economy that was painted the by the Florida. data yeah, yeah, yeah a number yeah, of months yeah. ago it's not there in the same way and i think if there's any anxiety right now mike it's always about the delta where does the change come from in china we know it's weaker relative to where we were before. In Europe, we know it's weaker relative to where we, bef- we were before. The unknown seems to be the United States, Mike. What is happening with the U- this US economy? Is it just a return to trend growth, or do we overshoot? What's the answer, Mike?
4: Yeah, I don't think we overshoot. I actually think what you are seeing, look, we've had these these periodic growth slowdowns throughout this entire expansion. I think we're seeing one right now. I'd also argue that if you if you actually look through the data, we are starting to see some signs now uh, of some underlying strength. So we, we don't think the economy is set to roll over, nor do we think the recession risks are particularly acute. We are walking through a period of, of, of weaker data, at least certainly versus consensus expectations. But we still expect to see growth somewhere towards trend over the course of this year in uh, 2019.
0: Michael Ryan, thank you so much. With UBS political statement, and of course, we'll have much more from Mr. Ryan and his team uh, in the coming 18 uh, months. Guy Johnson is with us, who has memorized the resume of every prime minister or candidate. At the end there, Guy Johnson, who is Jeremy that he was speaking down to of Mr. Gove?
5: Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary. Um... And asking him whether or not one of his competitors would do a good job, uh, and I suspect that Jeremy. What are the public- shades of the
0: What are the shades of the Conservative Party right now for Americans, our American listeners in Morning America? I would suggest it's a bit confusing. There's Boris with a hair like Trump, and there's everybody else. What are the shades? <laughs>
5: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the two standing next door to each other, wouldn't it? Um, we, we may see that. <laughs> you never know that might that might happen. And as the president suggested, um, the the two are friends. Um, look, basically, you've got the Conservative Party split into two two basic factions. One of which is the hard Brexiteers, uh, of which Boris Johnson is the most obvious candidate, but there are others. Uh, and then you've got the more centrist candidates who are pushing back and are concerned uh, about the the possibility of a hard Brexit. Um, the Conservative Party has sort of been split in this way uh, for really quite some time. At the moment, Tom, the betting is that a hard Brexiteer is likely to win out. Okay. If that is Boris Johnson, will he actually deliver upon that hard Brexit? Boris has um, changed his spots one or two times. Yes, I
0: see that within the British media, the the, the vibrant newspapers of this London uh, you see that every day. But then you get to October 31st. Every date has been extended. Do you and the British media just assume it's another can to be kicketh down the road?
5: Uh we went see. We could probably ask the question to the French. The French seem very keen that that date is more firm uh, than maybe others are suggesting at this stage that a deal okay. needs to be done at this point. I think it's very hard to get your arms around understanding whether or not that would be the case. Right. Um, I think the the <clears throat> EU would be nervous about forcing yeah. a hard Brexit.
0: Are you with Vonnie Quinn here in 20 minutes?
5: Uh, I am with Vonnie Vonnie Quinn okay. will be in New York though. okay. I'll be'll be with her here. She'll be with me in spirit it's here as well.
0: Wonderful chemistry as well there between the Irish and the British here. Avani <laughs> Quinn and Guy Johnson move the dialogue forward on Bloomberg Television.
6: Tom, We are very fortunate to welcome to the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, uh, Bob Diamond, uh, partner and founding partner and CEO of Atlas Merchant Capital, and of course, former CEO of Barclays. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for joining us uh, in studio. Um, I know you're here for the Bloomberg Invest Conference. I just wondered, you know, just given what we heard from President Trump and Theresa May, one of the topics obviously uh, is Brexit. Given your experience in the UK with Barclays and so on, how do you think this is going to play out? in your opinion?
7: Uh, you know, it's the question of the day. And I think uh, we're not going to know until leadership is, is settled, which we've been talking about in, in the Conservative Party. And it's going to take leadership to deliver this. Um, you know, my starting position is it was a bad decision, but I think it is what it is. And now it's about implementation and execution and moving forward and certainty. <clears throat> and I think the business community in particular in the financial services industry needs certainty. So I think the next leader has to be someone that we can be confident can uh, deliver and execute. Is it your
6: sense, given you know your understanding of, of a British corporate, um, um, you know, politics and what's going on, is it your sense that corporations in the UK have done
7: what they can to prepare for what might be a less than clean Brexit? Yeah, I would say a couple things, Paul. It's a it's a good point. And through Panmore Gordon, which is the the middle market broker dealer that we're Uh, we're an owner of in the UK. We talk to small businesses every day, and they have moved on. So they fully expect Brexit. I think they're, to your point, as prepared as they can be right now. And I think if you asked the chief executives, they'd say to a person, we just want certainty and we want to move forward. I think the kinds of things they were hearing today about the potential for uh, trade, Uh, agreements with the US and UK will be will be taken very very positively but it's certainty more than anything else that they need now.
0: Bob Diamond, Tom Keene in London and we say good morning here from the rain of London, uh, light rain I should say. (laughs) It's beautiful here Tom. As the president uh, moves on with his day you have an uncommonly direct relationship with Boris Johnson going back to his time as mayor with your leadership with Barclays and for all of our listeners worldwide identified with Premier League sponsorship, but particularly those bikes pedaling around. And I can, I'll say right now, folks, without editorializing that Bob Diamond's leadership and getting bikes around cities, maybe it was, was your most profound effect, Bob. Tell us about the Boris Johnson you know, and can he get along with multinational business in London?
7: So I, I as you say, Tom, I've known Boris for over 20 years. I think he was an absolutely terrific mayor. I think London. Then why benefited. is he a
0: lightning rod of criticism?
7: Uh, I think I think many great leaders uh, can be can be lightning rods. I think this whole process of Brexit. Um, I think everyone uh, has come out, you know, uh, around an issue that divided the country this much. Of course, there's going to be uh, some light, lightning rod impact. But you know, I even worked on the mayor's fund for London when Boris set up a fund for London. It was to ensure that young children um, had a good introduction to school, and that meant everything from making sure they had meals when they got to school uh, to making sure that the teachers were prepared, and it was a, a recognition. He never talked about it. He never got credit for it, but it was a recognition that the importance for London of the younger generation, young kids getting a good start in school. But I think what he brings, what he brought to London was he's really, really smart. He's a really, really strong leader. He's very, very strategic, and he's willing to make bold decisions. And I think, um, you know, right now, when we're looking at execution, execution, execution being critical, we know the direction that we're going on Brexit, and it's all about execution. That's the kind of leadership that we need.
0: Uh, how would Prime Minister Johnson be different from President Trump? I mean, they've got the same blonde hair. There's a story about that. Maybe they'll get the Bob Diamond look going. But but how is Mr. Johnson different from Mr. Trump?
7: Yeah, I, I don't think there's any similarities really. I guess the fluffy hair might be, but uh, you have to go back over over the time that that uh, that Boris has had real impact. And I look at the London of today. One of the reasons that you know, that city has weathered all the, if I can call it the kerfuffle of Brexit, not Brexit, maybe Brexit, sometimes Brexit, where's everyone going? London is still the key financial center in the world. I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of concern, Bob, is that
6: uh, with the uncertainty of Brexit that London would lose its position as a global financial marketplace. And I guess we really haven't seen it today. We've seen certain jobs move, to Frankfurt, to other parts of Europe. Do you expect that to accelerate if we have uh, maybe a messy Brexit deal?
7: Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. One, for the next decade or 100 years, London will be one of the key financial centers in the world and will be a place where people want to live. Great schools, great environment, great culture, but most importantly, it'll be one of our key financial centers. There are jobs moving to Dublin, to Amsterdam, to Frankfurt. But Paul, I would say this is something that, that these capitals have been looking for since the introduction of the single currency. There's always been, why is everything in London? That's right. So everyone wants to get their piece of the business. This was a little bit of a crack to allow some of that to happen, but I think some of it is a natural evolution. Is the asset management industry, you know, managing pension money in Frankfurt always going to be in London? No, they're going to always try and pull more of it back, the same way Chicago wants to pull business from New York. So some of this is natural. It got a little bit of an impetus. I think a lot of the services, legal services, accounting services will be spread out a little bit more. And so there will be an impact on London, but not an impact that's going to remove it as the, as the premier financial center in the world. Both, I guess at the press conference
6: today, Bob, both the, uh, President Trump and Prime Minister May uh, talking about a U.K.-U.S. trade deal and how it could be potentially, by President Trump's words significantly bigger than the
7: current trade agreement. How do you think that might develop? Well, I think, I think both for the U.S. and the U.K. right now, having the positive momentum of a substantive real trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K. would be great. I think it would be terrific for both countries. Um, You know, the history of of this relationship goes way back, Uh, 30 years ago when I moved to London with Morgan Stanley, um, I was there for Big Bang. I was there to see the impact that the U.S. financial services industry, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Solomon Brothers. You know, the beginning of their really international expansion was to London. The growth of the financial markets, the incredible capital markets that we take for granted today. So much of this is a result of the UK-US special relationship. I don't think we can underestimate it.
0: We are thrilled that Bob Diamond's with us, of course, a former leader of Barclays. He's got all sorts of ventures moving on now, including uh, speaking at in Bloomberg today. Bob Diamond will continue with us. He is with... Paul Sweeney in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. I'm Tom Keen at Queen Victoria Street. Paul, I should point out, with better coffee than you have, uh, the coffee here is uh, extraordinary.
6: We've got the Uh, absolute most spectacular building in our newest building edition in London.
0: It is. It's really something here. And of course, with Roman Romans down in the basement, Bob Diamond, I think he held a Colby fundraiser in the Roman ruins, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago as well. But it is indeed historic here and an historic moment as Prime Minister May really possibly her last appearance uh, before she loses leadership of the Conservative Party and then towards a new prime minister avoiding a general election uh, with President uh, Trump. The Dow up 239 points as we speak with Bob Diamond. Uh, Bob, it is a special relationship as well, and yet we go to a trade deal without question. The British press this morning talks about the aggressiveness of President Trump in mercantile non-lateral negotiations. What kind of trade deal could be Negotiated in a, a post-Brexit world,
7: um, you know, you're you're well beyond my area of expertise. But I think thinking about this just from the UK position right now, um, as they uh, move toward exiting Brexit, there's probably nothing more important on the economic agenda than to, than to ensure um, trading relationships and um, uh, the documentation of that with their key trading partners. We've talked about this before, Tom, but both when I was at Barclays and now in Atlas Merchant Capital with Panmore Gordon, I've spent a lot of time in towns like Leeds and Birmingham and Manchester with small businesses. And it surprised me early on, it will never surprise me again. Every single business, no matter how small, warehouses to, to chocolate makers, to, to, raisin manu- to, to razor manufacturers, all have trade with Europe, and almost all of them have trade with the US as well. This is a trading nation. And so I think the shock of the uncertainty of Brexit is right. m- most profound with the small businesses across the UK. And the benefit will be most profound if we get certainty and we get we get some good trade agreements.
0: Well, I don't want to go all David Ricardo on you, but I will. So do you assume that a post-Brexit United Kingdom can overlay a burgeoning U.S.-U.K. relationship on top of the existing volume of EU trade, or does it substitute?
7: Uh, I don't think it will replace uh, by any means. I think the trade with Europe is critical for the U.K. I haven't got the numbers to hand, uh, but I know trade with Europe is is significantly greater than trade with the U.S. Uh, for businesses uh, uh, in the U.K. I was not in favor of Brexit for, for just these reasons, but we've moved beyond that. It's now into execution, and we have to execute it in a way that the trade relationships between the U.K. corporates and, uh, and uh, Europe stays as strong as it can.
6: So, Bob, one of the issues I know for global financial institutions is kind of just the European market in general, the strength of the European economy. One of the, the, the big issues, I guess, from your part of the world, the financial services part of the world, is Deutsche Bank. Where do you, what do you think happens to Deutsche Bank, specifically, and, to, and banking in Germany in general?
7: So I think banking in Germany is at a, a very interesting crossroad right now. They have two very large, um, very um, low profit in both Commerce Bank and Deutsche Bank. Um, so they have two very large institutions. They're not performing well. They're clearly in play, as we've watched the Deutsche Commerce Bank discussions Go forward officially and then end. Uh, You can read as well as I can that Unicredito from from Italy, they have a they have a very very strong CEO and JP Mustier uh, are looking at Commerce Bank. And so if you asked me, uh, a transaction like that would be very very positive. I think Germany has an issue and they need a resolution to at least one of Deutsche Bank or Commerce Bank. And over. You didn't quite ask this, Paul, (laughs) so I'm kind of adding a second thing, so I think it relates. But um, overall of this is the fact that we have a new ECB governor coming. And I think Europe needs um, a very, very strong governor of the ECB, someone more like Mario Draghi, who made that incredibly important comment in 2012 that he'll do whatever it is necessary. Uh, in the interests of the eurozone, and what Europe does not need is another hardline Bundesbank orthodoxy, orthodoxy-driven one-variable um, kind of approach. We need much more flexibility toward uh, toward monetary policy in, in in Europe. And I think who succeeds Mario Draghi is a critically important factor.
6: Well. One of the things Tom and I have talked about, uh, you know, continually uh, on this show is it seems like after the financial crisis, the U.S. banking industry cleared, for lack of a better word, consolidated, rationalized. Yet Europe does not seem to have done that. Ergo, the banks are not as strong. We have negative interest rates not helping in certain major markets. Do you believe that there needs to be a, a clearing or a consolidation of European banking broadly?
7: Uh, absolutely, and it's going to it's going to take a while. But if we go back, and uh, I've spoken at length with Tom about this, not with you, Paul, but the TARP program was brilliant. You know, it basically put more equity than any bank needed in all of the systemic banks. Uh, the, the 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 trick was number one: you can't pay that capital back until you pass the stress test, which means you have cleaned up your balance sheet. And until you pay it back, you can't pay bonuses and you can't pay dividends. So the U.S. banks repaired quickly. Is there a program like that that could be implemented across Europe? I think if there was a will and a way, it would have been done. And so I think a lot more of the pressure is on each of the the nations. So in Greece, for example, they did consolidate. They had 25 banks in 2008 and 2009. Today, there's four major banks, which is the consolidation of those 25. But they average over 50% non-performing loans today, 10 years on. And that's the situation with Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank. They Uh never address the balance sheet issues.
0: Well, let's go right to that. Bob Diamond, we've got time for one more question. We're waiting for Chairman Powell to speak an important speech in uh, Chicago. We'll have that for you on Bloomberg Radio. Bob Diamond, I think the last time you and I talked, the Red Sox uh, were playing, I don't know, above, below 500 ball. Now they're doing a little better. And also Deutsche Bank was at seven euros per share. We had a five handle the other day. The vector is not good. What occurs? Does the German government step in? I mean, each nation has their own ballet. How do you see a Deutsche Bank workout?
7: So that's, you're getting to the nub of the issue is I think the commerce-Deutsche combination allowed something that, that, that because the government had an ownership in commerce bank, they could kind of get away by being involved in that, in that merger. But no elected official or no regulator wants to be associated with too big to fail or bailing out a bank. And that's why SIFI and GSIFI and buffer upon buffer of capital – it's created massive opportunities for us in Atlas Merchant Capital, so we kind of love it. But that's not the question you're asking. You're asking, what's the resolution of Deutsche Bank? And I think it's really challenging. And it yeah. puts it puts the elected officials in Germany in an enormously challenging position if they have to bail it out. But if I can be quite direct, they kind of are already. You know, the the, the markets have— Uh, the underpinning that the german government would step in if necessary and this is exactly what the regulators and elected officials hated in 2008 and 2009 was too big to fail and here it is again
0: bob diamond thank you so much just generous of your time here uh today mr diamond of course uh with uh barclays and he's moved on to other uh investment uh action here in 2019. thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast